Remember that clip two yeah. years ago? I interviewed a little boy on his first day of school. Took a lot of heat for it. You may remember this bittersweet moment that instantly went viral. Well, I had a chance to catch up with little Andrew uh, as he was headed back to school this week. So take a look. Do people recognize you? Yeah. Yeah, they want to take pictures with you? Yeah. Chances are you too recognize six-year-old Andrew Macias from this clip watched hundreds of millions of times online. Are you gonna miss your mom? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> Two years ago, I asked Andrew that question on his first day of preschool. I took some heat for it, even though I have a son the same age and viewers didn't know his mom Patricia was right there with us. What did you think when he started to cry? I think he just, he just felt sad, yeah. You weren't mad at me? No, I wasn't. <laughs> of course not, I wasn't. No, it wasn't your fault. She never imagined that interview would turn into a viral sensation, dozens of memes, an appearance on Tosh.0, and now an eBay commercial. But did you check eBay? No. No? <laughs> Andrew gets recognized. I'm like, yeah, it's him. Place. We were in the elevator and the lady goes, oh, is that your kid that came out on TV? I'm like, yeah, it's him. Oh, can I take a picture with him? I'm like, sure. <laughs> You're now the most famous kid in America. How does it make you feel? Good. <laughs> Still shy and sweet as ever, we wanted to catch up with Andrew as he heads to first grade. Are you excited for school? Yeah. Yeah? Do you think your teacher is going to recognize you? Yeah. And since I'm now infamous for making kids cry, I figured no harm in asking this one more time. Are you going to miss your mom? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Courtney Friel, KTLA 5 News. No tears this time. No, no tears. And I think I should revisit him every few years. <laughs> it might be a good idea. Yeah, I don't think when he's a senior in high school, she'll have to do that. Well, millions of children across the United States will have a similar experience to young Andrew as they head off down the hallways of a new school and new experiences that uh, they have no background with. And, you know, there are a few things in life more daunting to a human being than to go completely off into the unknown. And for kids going to school, especially a new place, it can be just like that. Not to mention what it's like for their parents. And, um, and I know because I watch how many of them drop their kids off and what happens. So hopefully there won't be a lot of wrecks tomorrow as people are dabbing their eyes, dropping their kids off. Well, this morning I want us to give attention to some things as we begin a new school year. And I, that may not affect your, you directly or your household directly. But it's a great opportunity for us to think about some things that our students and our teachers are thinking about. So the title of this morning's message is Seeing Me But Praising Him. Seeing Me But Praising Him. And my text today is found in Matthew chapter... This comes from... And we're going to read ultimately verses 13 through 16. But um, this comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And many of you will find it a familiar passage... But I want us to dig into it today and see how the Lord might want us to apply it to our lives. Seeing me, but praising him. 
Matthew 5, verse 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. The city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Immediately, Jesus is answering the question for every Christian in the room who may be thinking or has thought at some time or other, why am I here? Well, Jesus answers that question. It's not difficult. and I love the way Jesus teaches. He says it's very simple. The reason that you are here is because you are salt and because you are light. That's why you're here. You're salt and you're light. If every student goes off to school tomorrow and wonders why am I here, it's because if you're a Christian, you're salt and you're light. And, and so immediately we realize that, that our God, who cannot be seen with physical eyes, who is a spirit and who doesn't have a physical body, is not confined to a body like we are, that he has chosen to make himself known through us. And so he says, you are salt and you are light. And so he doesn't want us to keep him a secret. He wants us to make him known. He wants us to go public with our knowledge of God and our experience of God. And so he uses this imagery of salt and light. He says, first of all, you are salt. Now, there are a lot of different ways that interpreters tackle this subject of what does it mean when Jesus says that Bible teachers are... But, but let me give you the most obvious, the most basic one, and the one that most Bible teachers agree upon. In the ancient world, there were no refrigerators. So if you were going to preserve meat, especially that can spoil and go bad, you salted it. Salt was a preservative. Salt was a way of fighting back decay, fighting back corruption. And when Jesus looks at you and me and says that we are salt, He's saying that because of the way we live and that we show an entirely different way of life and a different approach to life, in that sense, we are pushing back on the decay, the corruption, and the damage of sin in the world. And we are to be that kind of preserving, fighting uh, force in the world that pushes back on those concepts. And then he says, you are light. And, And I believe that he is saying that what you are as a Christian ultimately can not be hidden. A city that's on a hill can't be hidden. No one lights a light, puts it under a bowl, some kind of covering. The purpose of light is to push back darkness. It is to be seen. And that's our role. That's our purpose. That's our function in the world in which we live. So because because of what you are, that you are salt and light, Jesus goes on and says there's something that you do, something you have the power to do, As a Christian, you may not have thought of yourself as having a superpower, but there's a superpower that comes up in verse 15. He says, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Now listen to what he says. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, seeing me, and glorify your Father in heaven, but praising him. And see, that's what Jesus is teaching us. They see you, but they wind up praising him. 
And that's accomplished through our works, the things that we do and say, the way we live our life, the way we conduct ourselves. And he's very, very clear to say that it's your light, yet your light so shines. Sometimes we worry about everybody else's light and how their lights are shining. But he's saying, no, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So your light clearly is your ability, the power that you have to influence other people. And so every student that goes into school, you have the power to influence people. Every teacher, every leader that goes into a school setting, you have the power to influence the people around you. The Oxford Dictionary online defines influence this way. The capacity, here's influence, the capacity to have an effect on the character, the development, or the behavior of someone or something. To be able to impact other people's lives. This is what Jesus intended. He's teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's laying down a foundation. He's saying what you are. You are these things. And in relationship to the world, he says, you are salt and you are light. But here's the problem. Salt that stays in the salt shaker, whatever analogy you want to use for that, the church or your classroom or whatever, the salt that stays in the salt shaker is not going to do any good. You see, in ancient time, salt was not refined the way salt is today. So this salt is incredibly pure. If you put it on your tongue, you're going to taste salt. I can blindfold you. Just put a little on your tongue. You're going to know what it is, right? Notice what Jesus says about it when he started off discussing. He says, but if the salt loses its flavor, you've never met salt that lost its flavor, have you? But in ancient times, salt was not pure. It was mixed in with fine particles of, of, uh, of other material, dirt, uh, some sand, uh, some rock, and you carried it around. You carried it in a pouch or something. If it got wet, that salt, holding it in, it would liquefy and would leach out of your, whatever you were holding it in, it would leach out, and all you would be left with is the impure part, the sand, the little particles of dirt. And if I sprinkle that on your, turn, your tongue, you're not going to taste that, are you? And so he's saying, look, if that salt ceases to do what it was made to do. If it, it can't preserve anything. It can't fight back corruption. It can't fight decay. It can't have an influence. It can't have any effect if it doesn't exist. And so as long as we keep it bottled up, we can't have an impact. We were meant to go live in the world. We were meant to go public. What we do here on Sunday morning should be a training ground. What we should do here should be where we encourage one another. We pray for one another. But the whole objective is that we go out into our daily lives and we are light and we are salt. That's what we were made for. That's your purpose. So I want to talk to you today about this question. How can you be an influence for God this year in your world? How can you be an influence for God this year in your world? And there are three things that I want to share with you. First of all, make Jesus your master. Make Jesus your master. Now, I'm not going to get into a theological debate of whether or not a person can trust Christ for salvation and not trust him as Lord. Because I believe when you trust Jesus as Savior, you are trusting him as Lord. It is who he is. And so, 
there's a, in a real technical sense, I don't make Jesus anything. It's who he is. He is Lord. He is, he is the master of everything. I, I understand that. But often we don't live our lives voluntarily as if he was in charge, do we? I mean, that's a choice that you and I have to make, and we really need to make it every day. Lord, I want you to be Lord, not just of the universe, not just of creation. I want you to be Lord today of my life, my decisions. Every circumstance that I go into, I I need you. You say, well, Pastor, I, I hear what you're saying, but how does that help me have influence? I want you to think with me for just a moment about someone from the Old Testament named Moses. Moses, when he started out, I promise you, whatever low self-esteem you think you have, his was lower. He, he didn't have any sense that he could influence anybody to do anything. He had no concept that God could use him to change his world in his day. He didn't feel like he was a leader. He didn't feel like he was a prophet. He didn't feel like he had anything to say for God or anything of value that anybody would want to hear. If you gave him a group of people, he didn't feel like he could lead them across a street, much less through a a Red Sea. That was how he felt. Have you ever felt that way? I don't have any influence. I'm a nobody. Moses believed that. Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to this. Then Moses answered. God's appeared to him, by the way, in a fiery bush. Um, as, a, as a flame inside the bush. bush was not consumed. It was a miracle. And by the way, that flame was telling us something very amazing about God because it wasn't consuming the bush. And because God chose to manifest himself as a flame that needed no fuel to exist, he was saying something very profound about who he was. I am God. I don't need anything to exist. I don't need any fuel. I don't need any food. I don't need any rest. I don't learn anything. I already know everything. Well, wouldn't that be great? You don't have to learn anything because you already know everything. And, um, and God never changes. He doesn't grow like you and I grow. He's no different today than he was at this moment with Moses. And so he's telling Moses what he's going to do, what he's being called to do. Then Moses answered and said, but suppose they, these six million Jews, or two million Jews, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose I don't have any influence over them, no impact on their life. And suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you in your hand. And Moses looked at it. And I would love someday to know what went through his mind at that moment. And he says, a rod. Now, what did he mean by a rod? What was that? What was that thing? It It was a big stick. But it was a shepherd's staff, wasn't it? And God says, what is that in your hand? Now, why did God ask him what was in his hand? It's because God didn't have the capacity to see and know what was in his hand? I mean, God knew exactly what was in his hand. God was teaching Moses something. What is that in your hand? And so Moses looks at this. Here's this staff, this rod, this shepherd's crook, and, and he's holding this. And this, this rod represents Really, who Moses is. What is Moses at this time in his life? He's a what? He's a shepherd. It's what he does for a living. So this rod represents his his whole identity. Everything that he is. This is represented by the rod. What is that in your hand? It's a rod. It's what I do. It represents what he does with with his every day of his life. He's a shepherd. And, And so it represents who he is and it represents 
what he does with every single day. And God says, what is that in your hand? He says, it's a, it's a rod. Now, I want you to notice that God did not begin with what Moses did not have. He began with what Moses already had. God doesn't come to you and talk to you about doing something based on the person that you are not. He comes to you based on the person who you are right now. And that's what he was doing to Moses. He wouldn't say, I'm coming to you, Moses, because of this great education you had when you were younger 40 years ago in Egypt. I'm not coming to you, Moses, because at one time you walked the halls of Pharaoh's house and you would have a better end than anybody else to Pharaoh. He said, I'm not coming to you because of all your, your physical abilities and your intelligence or your prowess or anything like that. I'm just coming to you, Moses, today, just like you are, just a guy who's for 40 years has been a shepherd, and you got like you are. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Amen. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Woo. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand all over again. And then, um, and then he said that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And in this short exchange, Moses discovers the secret of influencing others. When God said, throw it down, cast it down, take who you are, take what you do every day, release it. Release it. Let it go. And when you do, Moses, watch what happens. When you take who you are and what you do every day and you give it to me, I will supernaturally transform those things and I will use you in a powerful way in people's lives. What's that in your hands, Rod? Throw it down, Moses. Let it go. Give me this thing that represents everything you are and everything that you do every day. God went on to use that staff, that rod, to call down all the plagues on Egypt. He used that rod to part the Red Sea. He used that rod to bring water from a rock. Ordinary, plain rod. A stick. And God did something powerful with it. And he changed the course of millions of lives. Because he let God be in control of his life. Now, Christian... Jesus didn't die for you just so you could go to heaven. He didn't die for you just so he could make you a good person who hides out in church every Sunday. He died for you so that you would take who you are and what you have and you would give it to him every day. You allow him to call the shots. You allow him to be in control. And so tomorrow morning when you get up to go to school, go to work, whatever you do, say, God, here I am. Just like Moses, I'm just, I'm just putting it down. And you can have it. It's yours. And Lord, would you empower it? Would you take my life? Would you take what I'm going to do today? Would you empower it? Use it in a supernatural way. Let Jesus be your master. Make him your master. If you want to influence other people, we don't influence people by being like the world. We influence people by being salt and by being light. Very different from the world. Second thing. Make caring your motive. If you want to influence people, make caring your motivation. 
In Matthew chapter 9, we see an illustration of this in the life of the Lord Jesus. Matthew 9, verse 35. Then Jesus, it says, went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. If I had a pencil, I'd underline that in my Bible. Highlight it on my phone, whatever. He was moved with compassion for them. That's his motivation because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Moved with compassion, that word that's used there, translated in English, compassion, literally refers to the the inner parts, the, the gut, the small intestine. He had something moved in his gut. He felt something viscerally on the inside. He was moved with compassion. And that's what provoked him to act. That's what provoked him to pray. That's what provoked him to do what he did. He was God in the flesh. He experienced compassion and mercy on us. And that is why he came. For God so loved the world. He was moved by those things. So what happened when he cared? Well, we can see it in the text. It's not hard. It says in the very first, verse 35, it says, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages. He went to them. He took the initiative to go to people, to engage people. He went to them, made the first move. And then it says he went about all the cities and villages. He went to all of them. There were no exceptions, no favorites, no groups that he liked better than other groups, no cliques that he hung out with, and, and God helped the people that weren't in his clique. He went to all of them. Unlike some preachers, I've had the privilege of having to work for a living at different times in my life. Now, there's a little humor there, y'all. That's humor. It's supposed to be funny. Dustin's worked for a living. I know Mike, wherever he is, taking care of the four-year-olds. He's, he's worked in the secular workplace before he went in the ministry, before Dustin went in the ministry. And then while I was in ministry, I worked for an engineering firm, and, and I, I rubbed elbows with lost people every single day. That's where I spent hours. Most of my, my days, most of my life during those years, I spent with people who didn't know Christ. And I can tell you something with all authority, with all certainty, with all confidence today, and I believe it's still true in Wynn, Arkansas, absolutely true. Most of the lost people in Wynn are not driving by Wynn Baptist Church once in a while and saying, you know, someday I'm going to go to them and ask for help. It's not happening. Most of them are not saying, someday I'm going to go to that church, and, and, and then when they need something, when they need help, they're not thinking, I need to go to Wynn Baptist Church and ask for help. Now, some people do, but that's... That's what they do for a living. Some people do that for a living. I, they do. I'm sorry. But I'm talking about just your normal, average day, lost person who's not going to heaven. They have a problem. They don't think, I need to go to the church. I'll say, I'll call a counselor. I'll go do something else. But I'm not going to the church. And so, what are we going to do about that? If they're not going to come here, and hear a wonderful sermon and sit through a great Bible class and see how great we are, if they're not going to come here and experience Jesus and experience who He is and hear the music of the gospel and smell the fragrance of Christ, if they're not going to do that, where's it going to happen? Jesus said, you are the salt. You are the light. 
You can't stay in the salt shaker. We have to go to them. So what happened when he cared? He went to them. He went to all of them. And then it says here he did a couple things. He told them about God and he showed them about God's love. If, as you look at this, he told them about God. He was teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. But he just didn't talk. He also showed them the proof or the truth of what he was saying, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. You know, is I've got to knock down. You may, as you and I understand the Lord, we studied this summer nine words that describe how he saved us, and we saw how he stepped in, took away the cause of the, the wrath towards our sin. He stepped in and removed the cause that was breaking our, our relationship so that we could be reconciled to him. He's the one that stepped in, and even though we're not right with him, he declared us righteous. He's the one that said, I don't want to just save you. I just don't want to forgive your sins. I want to make you my sons and daughters and adopt you. We know that he came for us, that he loves us, that he loves us unconditionally. We know these things. But listen to me, friend. The lost person that you know, they don't know that. They don't know that. And so if they're going to see unconditional love, if they're going to see that kind of action, that kind of, kind of God, they're going to see it in us. I'll say more about that in a moment, but he showed them God's love. So this, the thing that you can be encouraged by is to know this. The same Jesus who went to them, the same Jesus who went to all of them, the same Jesus who told them about God, the same Jesus who showed them God's love, the same Jesus lives in you. And he wants to live his life through you. The Apostle Paul said, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And that's true of every Christian who's ever trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Christ lives in you, the same Jesus. And if he's going to have his way with you, when you take that rod, you throw it down and say, Lord, here I am. Here's my day. Here's my life. You throw it down. He will produce those things in you if you'll trust him. But let caring be your motivation. Let caring be your motivation. And then the third thing is to make serving your method. Make serving your method. Caring your motive, serving your method. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, the Apostle Paul writes, For I am free from all men, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. So Paul's saying that the more he served others, the greater influence he would have with others. The more I serve them, the more I might win them. And so he saw a direct relationship between serving others, meeting their needs, going into their world listening to them, finding out what's going on in their life, caring about them, and then to the best of my God-given ability and his infinite supply, seeking to meet that need, to serve them, I can have influence. Serving influences others. Now, I said it in the last point, I'll say it again. The world does not know anything about unconditional love. And there are a few churches that know about it. We aren't known in America as being the people who love unconditionally. We want to fix people. We politic against them. We spout our views. 
But do we just love them without condition? Or do we say, first you, you clean up, you line up over here, and then I can love you? And we've got to learn that God loves you and me unconditionally, and I thank God for that. That when I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Not while I was a saint, but while I was a sinner. And we've got to learn to love people the way Jesus does. To love them without condition. Jesus told his disciples something uh, very important. Matthew 20, verse 26. He says, whoever desires to become great. Great people have influence, don't they? Great people have influence. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Serving others is the way we influence the world. That's the way we're salt. That's the way we're light. They see your good works. They see me, but they praise him. Now, in the world, greatness is measured by how many people serve you. I got so many employees. I got so many people in my church. I got so many people, you know. Service, when someone is a servant, we measure greatness in an entirely different way. Not by how many people serve us, but by how many people we serve. Jesus just takes the entire world's value system, turns it upside down. Whoever wants to be great among you, really great, he's a servant of all, man. Now, and by the way, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do a commercial. What we do here at church is where we should practice what we do in the world. And dear ones, we got a lot of serving that needs to be done at Wind Baptist Church. A lot of serving. Now, listen, we have some of the world's greatest servants in this church. We do. We have some incredible men and women and teenagers that serve, and they give and give and give and give. They do. But listen, one person can only give so much. And some of them are spent. And we have needs for people to step up and say, I'll help. I'll help. I'll help. Because whatever the ministry of this church is going to be, it's going to be because the people have become the ministers of the church. You can't hire enough people to do all the ministry of this church. You can't. And our needs are great. And enough of that. All right. There's a way of serving others, though, that's often overlooked. And, and in my mind, this is something practical, especially students, that you need to just pause. If you weren't listening, I hope you'll listen now, okay? This is important. This is a way of serving that's often overlooked. We don't think of it as serving, but it's a real service. In every school, if you've never noticed it, but there's probably uh, different groups of kids. You ever notice that? They hang out together. This group hangs out with their friends. This group hangs out with their friends. This group hangs out with their friends. And I don't know what you call them now. We used to call them cliques. Um, but, but, but they hang out. And so some kids are cool and they hang out together and other kids not so cool. And the not so kid, cool kids hang out together. And I want you to know that, that part of the essence of, of bullying begins when we begin to ignore people or we are indifferent to people or we don't notice people who are somehow not part of our group. And one of the ways I can serve is to break down those stupid barriers that we erect as human beings between other human beings. And we say, you know, they're a human being and they're breathing. I can serve them. 
And some people need you to step up for them. Some people truly are bullied, and you really need to step up for them. I'm not asking you to be mean to the bullies. I'm not suggesting you do that. In Romans chapter 12, verse 17, the apostle said, you know, get into a name-calling contest, see who can come up with the best names. I'm not suggesting that. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's what we want to do. But when someone's disrupting, damaging, hurting someone else, we can't be silent. We can't be quiet when someone's being harmed by someone else. We're not being salt at that moment if we keep our mouth shut. We need to stand against it. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 26, it says, A righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. And if you're a follower of Christ and someone's abusing somebody else, you need to say, hey, stop it. Speak up. Proverbs 31, verse 8 says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. Come alongside that person. I'm not suggesting you get in a fight. Tell someone in authority. Tell a teacher. Tell a principal. But come alongside them. Don't leave them out there. Don't just put a video of somebody getting beat up. Good grief. How dumb is that? That is not following Jesus. Why don't we close in this way on the screen? You'll see a couple of things. Here's what I think the Lord is calling us to when he says, to let your work so shine before men that they may see your good works let your light so shine before men they may see your good works and glorify your Father. They praise Him because they, they saw you. You know the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer? They both have thermometers in them, don't they? There's a thermometer in your thermostat. measures senses the temperature. It reacts to the temperature. It reacts to it. If it's hot, Temperature in the thermometer goes up, doesn't it? Mercury rises. If it's cold, the mercury goes down. It just reacts to what's going on. A thermostat controls its environment. A thermometer reacts to the environment. A thermostat controls that environment. And when Jesus says that you and I are to be salt and light, we're to change the temperature of the world around us. We really are. That's what God's called you and I to do. People in your office, and they're just moaning and groaning, complaining against the boss. Every time the boss leaves the office, they quit working. They start talking. If you're a thermometer, you join in. If you're a thermostat, you say, hey, I got work to do. Why don't you all knock it off? You all get to work too. You know? Now, you're not going to get popular that way. But God has called us, I believe, to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. Okay? Do you know Jesus? This morning, in just a minute, as part of our worship, what we do is we give people an opportunity to publicly come and say, I'm trusting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Have you ever done that? Have you reached the conclusion that without God, I'm lost? That my sins are separating me from the Lord, from God? He loves me. 
He sent his son to die for me to take my place, but I have never trusted him. I've never put my trust in him to come in and change me and to make me new. And pastor, there's no way I can be salt and light unless Jesus lives in me. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing, and I'm going to invite you, whether you're upstairs or down, to come. Take one of the pastors by the hand and say, I want to trust Jesus. I want to know Christ. I want it to be real. I don't want religion. I don't want a relationship with him. And these pastors will help you. They'll pray with you. Christian, Christian, tomorrow, today, this moment, will you take your rod, your staff, and will you give it to God? Say, God, here I am. Would you just make a fresh commitment of your life to him and say, Lord, I want to be used, and I know that that means surrendering myself to you and letting you supernaturally empower me to guide me so that when I go into that classroom, I go into my workplace, I go do whatever I do tomorrow, and and I'm going to trust you to use me. I want to be salt the way you meant for me to be salt. I want to be light the way you meant for me to be light.